This evening we're gathered, and that means we get to continue in our worship around the Word of God. And this evening we will be in 1 Kings chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 38. 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 38. Because of how long it is, and because we're outside and there's bugs and stuff, we won't read the whole thing, but I will read a portion of it to begin us. 1 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Then in verse 37, In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's open in a brief word of prayer. Lord Jesus, would you help us as there are many things that can distract us. All the normal things that get in the way of us hearing your word. Anxieties and fears and the hustle and bustle of life. Even the good things in life that threaten to crowd you out of the place being first and foremost in our hearts. Would you grant us right now an ability to hear your word, to receive it with open hearts, to come away as changed people, even those who have gotten a brief glimpse of the God who made us all. Would you grant us that? In the mighty name of Jesus we pray, amen. If you've ever gone through the process of buying a home, you know one of the most important steps along the way is the walkthrough. You walk through maybe as you are house hunting, uh, comparing one house to the other. Uh, you, you certainly do so in order to find out layouts, to see certain features that one house might have over another. And in so doing, you get to know the home, but inevitably, you also get to know the people who inhabited that home. Uh, sometimes those people are stranger than others. There was one man in Pennsylvania recently that posted his house. Precious found this listing, so the credit goes to her. Um, it's a quirky house. It was three beds, one bath. That's not the strange part. That house had three distinct themes to its decor. Uh, one was a castle. It had hidden passageways and an old-school type library. The second theme was science fiction. It had rooms with all sorts of knobs and gauges and things. It even had a talking alien in the living room. And then the third theme was a desert island. The owner of the house said he was trying to make it feel like he was living on the island of Robinson Crusoe. I think his uh, realtor got it right. She described her client as a, quote, quirky man. You can't help but get to know someone as you get to know the house they live in. It's just inevitable. This evening, we come to a house that was built 3,000 years ago by a king named Solomon for the very God of the universe. And this evening, we are going to go on a virtual tour of that house to walk through it. And as we do, we will see three aspects, three aspects of the house that Solomon built for God that tell us of the God that will live there. 
Those three aspects are as follows, and then I'll fill them in along the way. First, the first aspect is breathtaking beauty. Breathtaking beauty. Second is matchless worth. Matchless worth. And the third is restricted access. Restricted access. And as we do this walkthrough together and see those three aspects, we'll come away seeing a God that is breathtakingly beautiful, matchless in worth, and yet difficult to access. And what a privilege it will be for us to worship him. Let's begin with that first feature of the house that Solomon built, breathtaking beauty. Solomon has been building this house for a little while in the narrative along the way here. He is God's king appointed for this very purpose. He has peace on all sides. Israel is prospering. And so he has the wealth and peace necessary to build a temple that his father David never had the chance to build. The last time we were studying First Kings, we saw how he built the exterior of the house. But now we go on the inside and we find, just as he did with the outside, Solomon is using the finest materials he can get his hands on. In verse 15, we see he's using wood that you don't get from lumber liquid liquidators. He's got the premium stuff. In verse 15, it says, He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Cedar was top-line stuff. He had to import it from Tyre. Uh, He made a treaty back a few chapters ago in order to get enough of it. It it is the beautiful-to-look-at rich wood that will make up the vast majority of the inside of this temple. Now, there are some functional choices made, like the floorboards are made of a different type of wood, cypress. Uh, People have to be able to walk on this temple floor. And yet, the vast majority of the wood used was chosen for its beauty. Well, that beautiful wood is adorned with all sorts of decorations, what you might call a paradise decor. Look in verse 29. Several points it tells us how Solomon decorated this house. Verse 29, around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. You might summarize it this way. Solomon decorated the house with the beauty of both heaven and earth. He used the images of angels, cherubim. He used the images of lush plant life, blossoms, trees, palms open in their beauty. He does all of this to make a beautiful house. Why? Was he just a vain king who wanted something beautiful to look at as if he didn't have enough of those things already? No, 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 no. No, Solomon is building a house fitting for the God he serves. He builds a beautiful house because he serves a beautiful God. His father David understood this. David never got to set foot in that temple that Solomon built, but he wished he would have been able to. In a psalm he wrote, Psalm 27.4, he said this. He said, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I may seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
Solomon understands what David longed for, to gaze on the very beauty of God. And so Solomon built a house fitting for a beautiful God. But that's a very abstract concept. What does it mean that God is a beautiful God? I mean, it goes well in a poem or a song, but, but what does it actually mean? Well, one way you can think of it, sometimes we talk about God being a perfect God. That means that he lacks nothing. God doesn't need anything from us or the rest of the created order. He is perfect in that way. That's true. You can think of beauty as the flip side of that same coin. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it this way. Beauty is God possessing everything that is good. So it's not just that God lacks nothing. It's that God has everything that is good in himself. Now what that means is any good thing that we know of in this world, any smile on a small child's face, any rainbow after a hard uh, downpour of rain, any majestic mountain range that we uh, see and have our jaws drop, anything we see in this world that is good is really a reflection, a little taste of the God who made us all. God is good. And that means everything that is good is found in him. You can see this most clearly in his character. I mean, God is not uh, a being with a physical form that we can look upon. And yet you know his beauty because of his character. Think of the person of Jesus. Isaiah tells us very explicitly, Jesus was nothing especially good-looking to look at. He was not known for being handsome or beautiful. And yet when you see what Jesus did in his earthly life, and, and most specifically the horrible death that he experienced upon the cross to accomplish the very will of God and to bring us salvation, what better word can you choose than beautiful to describe him? Our God is a God full of love, mercy, justice. Our God has everything that is good, and that means he is beautiful. And Cousin wrote a poem that describes how we will see this beauty in Jesus one day. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear groom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Maybe you find yourself here tonight and you've been cooped up in a COVID sort of lockdown and you are longing to be able to go to beautiful places like you once did. There, there is something especially wonderful about getting out in nature and going to seashores, seeing majestic mountaintops. Would you realize what it is about that that our hearts resonate with so greatly? It's not just that it's pretty, although it is. It's that you were meant to bask in the glory of a beautiful God. And when you see some particularly beautiful things he's made, it reminds you of him. Brothers that are here tonight, men, there's a word here particularly for those of us as men that have to guard what we look at so vigilantly. 
Now, it's not a bad thing to desire to gaze at beauty and yet realize how easily we can be drawn into temptation and even sin through what our eyes see. Maybe if you find yourself this week struggling to keep your eyes away from a beautiful thing, maybe you would remind yourself that the true beauty is the God you serve and that you'll get to spend all eternity in his presence one day. Solomon builds a beautiful house for a beautiful God. But a beautiful God like this, who lacks nothing good, who has everything good, well, he must be especially valuable. That brings us to the second feature of this house. Not only is it breathtakingly beautiful, it is matchless in worth. Matchless in worth. The thing people know most about Solomon's temple is, of course, the gold. The glorious glitter of all that gold. And frankly, there is a lot of it. In verses 21 and 22, we get a little snapshot of it. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Some of us are uh, a, little, a little slow on the uptake, and so I love it when the writers of the Bible use one word over and over again to make sure we don't miss it. Ten times in these 24 verses, that word for gold comes up. There's lots of gold that goes into the construction of this temple. Just one compartment, the inner sanctuary, which we'll come to in a moment, required 39,000 pounds of gold in order to overlay it the way Solomon wanted. It would have glittered. It would have been glorious. And very few people would have had a chance to see it. Now, living at the time we do, we need to ask, is this an example of a rich king having an exercise in excess? Is this just another opulent monarch flaunting his wealth in a way that's frankly sinful? I heard of a a sheik who's alive today that in a way to show his wealth decided he would take baths in imported glacier water that came in individual bottles. He, He would literally take baths in this glacier water, bottled water, Uh, just because he could. He could afford the thousands of dollars each bath took. Well, I I know we're sensitive to such things the day we live, and yet the text says nothing of any sort of criticism in the way Solomon builds the house. And in fact, if if you fast forward to chapter 8, once everything's done, God will put his stamp of approval on this house. He will move in and make his presence known there. So I don't think we have any right to criticize Solomon for using so much gold. Well, why then? What what is the purpose of all this gold? Well, gold was certainly the medal of kings. Gold has with it the idea of purity, and God is a pure God. He is king over us all. That makes sense. But, But there's something more than that going on here. The cost is the point. The principle is this. If God is the best, then he deserves our best. If God is the best, then he deserves our best. One commentator put it this way. He said, 
Solomon wanted to make clear that he did not serve a bargain bin deity. That the God that he worships, the God who he makes this house for, is worthy of the best Solomon has to offer. Oh, there certainly is a principle here for us, isn't there? If God is the best, certainly he deserves our best as New Testament Christians. Now, that certainly doesn't mean we buy God off. That by giving enough money or sacrificing enough for him, somehow we get him on our side. No, 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 that's not what this means. No, instead, it's showing what we value most and where we draw our joy from. The thing you value most, you will be willing to sacrifice great, great amounts to. Think of the joy that a young man who is about to propose has in spending all that money to get an engagement ring. Think of the fullness in his heart as he makes that big financial sacrifice. If our God is the best of all, then certainly he deserves the best. Now, it's not just having to do with our money, although certainly it has application to it. If we draw our joy from what we can use, what God has given us to bring him glory, then we need to ask ourselves the question, are are we giving God our best? The best part of our day for the quiet devotion and prayer? The best part of our treasure of the plenty he provides us to honor him and further his work in this world? The best part of our affections, our emotional energy and our desires, because he is the first love of our hearts. The best efforts of our hands, because no matter what we do, it is worth doing in honor of the king we serve. Or the best worship our voices can muster, because who else is worthy of our singing? The God that Solomon built a house for is worth the best because he is the best. And I hope each and every one of us has our hearts full as we give our best back to God. Well, a God this beautiful and a God this valuable is the sort of God that we had better find a way to be around. We need to have a relationship with him, be in his presence But there is a catch, that final aspect of the walkthrough through this house that Solomon built is the restricted access, restricted access. Look with me in verse 19. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. Our attention is brought to one particular room in this house, which has some odd dimensions to it. It is a perfect cube, roughly 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It's called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be brought and would rest in that spot. You can can think of it as the focal point of where God's presence would be known. Now, this particular room was the one that got the most attention. That figure of gold was just to cover it in gold. 
recognize uh, two important features about this room. There are both doors to provide access, and those doors are guarded to prevent access. It's not the only part of the temple that has doors and has limits on who can go through those doors. The entire temple complex had a, a, like, basically a gate you could get through, but only Israelites of a certain standing could get inside that gate. Then there was the temple building itself. It had a door on the front of it, on the porch on the front, but only the priests could go inside that door in order to do their ministry inside. And then inside the temple, there is this 30 by 30 by 30 room. In that room, only one priest could go inside one time once a year, the Day of Atonement. And then for only a very specific purpose, to bring the blood to make atonement for the sins of the nation. It is a place that has access, and yet that access is severely restricted. How is it restricted? Well, first by doors. Second, there are, there's a chain that's mentioned in verse 21, a golden chain. If you look at the parallel passage in Chronicles, there's likely a curtain hung on that chain. It acted as a veil to keep those from seeing inside when you are on the outside. You couldn't even see in. But even more than that, even if you got past the doors, even if you got past the chain and the veil, even if you walked into the very innermost sanctuary, the most holy place, there you would be greeted with two imposing guardians. In verses 23 through 28, they're described cherubim, two big cherubim. They're they're roughly 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide. They dominate the entire back wall of the inner sanctuary. These statues uh, overlaid with gold represented the spiritual guardians of God's presence, the, the cherubim. If you remember in your Bible, back in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve lost access to the Garden of Eden, they were sent out. And when they were sent out, there was a flaming sword put back in the way to keep them from coming back in. And there was a cherub. These are, are God's ministers. They are angels. And they often have a guarding type function. Here, they block the path into God's presence. The point is that the path into God's presence is prohibited except to very, very few. I don't know about you, but that causes my heart to ache. A God that beautiful, a God that worth, worthy, I want to be in his presence. I want to see him and I want to worship him. And yet there would be no way for anyone except that one priest once a year to go into that room. What good news is it then that we don't worship in Solomon's house built for his God? That we instead have access to the God that dwelled in that house through the way opened by the man Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. You see, the good news of the gospel 
is that people that had no way into the presence of God except to meet his judgment instead have found a way back to God through this man, Jesus Christ. Jesus brought us to the breathtakingly beautiful, matchless worth presence of God. He did so by dealing with all the barriers between us and God, our sin. He dealt with our sin by giving his life as a sacrifice for sinners, using his own blood and bringing it into heaven itself to make atonement for sins. Now he has opened up a way. There is no more barriers, no more guardians. Anyone that believes in the name of Jesus, anyone that calls on him to save them from their sins, they will be brought with welcome into the very presence of God. Maybe you're here this evening, and you're not sure what sort of a welcome you might have in God's throne room. You're not sure what God would say if one day you were to die and go up to heaven and to show up in front of God's face. You're not sure what the first words out of his mouth would be. Friend, if that's you this evening, you can leave with the confidence that you would be welcome in that very presence of this beautiful and worthy God. But you can only have that if you believe in this man, Jesus Christ. None of us can ever earn our way into God's presence. None of us can work our sin debt off. No, our only hope is to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and to trust that he has done all that's needed to bring us into God's presence, that he really did deal with our sin problem. Rand, if you have questions about any of that, or you know that you right now would be not welcome in God's presence, Believe me, I would love to have a conversation with you, and I'm sure any Christian you know would love the same thing. Find out what it means to know that you can be in God's presence through Jesus Christ. For all of us that are believers here this evening, let's remember not to long for the house that Solomon built. Oh, no doubt, it was a beautiful house. I'm sure it took people's breath away. It would have been a sight to see. And yet God doesn't dwell in a house made of wood and stone any longer. God's presence is not found inside, even in our church building, which I know many of us want to get back inside of. No, God makes his home amongst his people in their very hearts by his spirit. That's what Jesus ushered in, a whole new era. An era of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And that means, friends, every time we gather together, we are together in the heaven itself, worshiping God in his very presence. We are in the holy of holies, singing to the beautiful, matchless and worth God that Solomon built a house for. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but that makes me want to sing. And I'm so glad we get to do it together and not virtually online for a change. In a second, we're going to sing a song. I just want to point your attention to a few of the lyrics to it. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. 
the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as we get ready to sing this next song, would our hearts be full with the reality that we get to be in God's presence as we do this together because Jesus has ushered God's people into the very throne room of heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we confess to you this evening, you are the most beautiful people, the most beautiful man to ever walk this earth. Not because your form was pleasing, not because you had well-done hair and fine clothes, but because you lack nothing good and you have everything that is good. Goodness itself comes from you. Jesus, we, we confess that you are worthy of everything we have to give. You deserve our best because you are the best. Would you help us to pour out what we do have as feeble as it may seem, as as impoverished as it is before your bounty, would you help us to have joy as we give back to you that which you have entrusted to us? Oh, Jesus, thank you that we have confidence. Confidence that we are welcome in the very presence of God and confidence we have full joy as we worship you. Would you cement in our hearts that reality now? Would you use this moment as we sing to you to impress these, heart, these truths upon our hearts so that in the week ahead as we get back to all the things that make up our lives, that we would remember where we got to go together. We got to go into the very presence of God in heaven. Help us to worship you now with freedom and joy in your spirit. We pray these things in that beautiful name of yours, Jesus. Amen.